high homelessness rate and actually in our book. So uh, each chapter we have statistics um, to, to raise awareness on all of these topics because so many people don't even realize all the things that's happening right around them in their neighborhood, yeah. even in their family probably. And so uh, we, we shine a light on those statistics, but then right under it, we say, what does God say? And we do that because we want to show people that um, this is what the world tells this demographic, this population, or people that have our background. This is what the world tells us that we will be, or or most likely will be. And this is what God says. Mm-hmm. And what is our identity rooted in? This is a show for the driven, for the dreamers. This isn't for the make-believers. I can walk all day long, but my walk has to become my must. This is for the determined, the self-defined, for those ready to push fear aside, crush doubt, and unleash the hero from the inside out. You are wonderfully made. You are beautifully fashioned. You are created with purpose. This isn't just another podcast. It's about living a life that counts. Yo guys, what's up? John Williams here with Alexis and Justin and another episode of A Life That Counts. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we're calling this season two. So your dose, let's get at it. Alexis, Justin, it is a pleasure to have you on. Tell me a little bit about yourselves. Yeah, uh, first and foremost, we're just thankful to be on here and for you to have us on here. It means a lot to us. So uh, we met Actually, we're two foster care alumni, and we met in a foster care program at our university called the Cedar Scholars Program. And the program is uh, basically for foster youth and higher education, where you kind of get familiar with uh, with university life, with campus. They give you a campus coach, and they basically help you transition into being a student and an adult. I was an incoming freshman. She was a junior, and mm-hmm. we met on the first day of this program over the summer before the, the semester actually started. So I technically uh, was an incoming freshman, not technically a freshman yet, but um, I met her and uh, fast forward, you know, to now we're married. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Four years later. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're on mute, I think. It's so... That's pretty cool. So let me just understand. So this was, um, this was like a post high school thing. Well, it was for, it was for college. So, um, it was at Western Michigan university, but they have a foster care support program on campus uh, to help students transition. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And so you guys met in that Mm -hmm. and Justin was like, what's up girl. And Alexis was like, Hey, (laughs) and then y'all were like, Four years later, here we are. That, that is yeah, exactly that is, how it went. That's exactly, exactly how it went. went. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Justin, I'll just a little bit. My wife's name is Alexis, uh, actually. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. And I met her. It was the same way. I was like, what's up, girl? And she was like, hey. <laughs> and so, <laughs> anyway, um, oh, my God. One upon, once, upon, once upon a time, right? So, can we just kind of jump right in it? Yeah, absolutely. So am I understanding it right? Both of you guys come from foster situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you're both coming into this relationship, this marriage relationship from that experience growing up. Exactly. Yeah. 
that sounds like it could be hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. in a lot of ways uh, of like, I mean, our background, but then also just trying to navigate like, what is a healthy relationship? How do we come together and have a successful relationship when so many fail that don't have our background? And then you put on our background and you put on the fact that we're in inter- interracial couple, just all these things can really uh, be stacked against us. Mm-hmm. And so we had to be super intentional. And that's actually why we wrote our book, um, Redefining Normal, How to Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness and Love. Um, and we we got a copy we wanted to show you. Um, so we that's why we actually we wrote it. Um, was Aid marketing the- advertisement <laughs> right there. There it there is. Everybody, everybody click the link below, pick up a book, support <laughs> these two amazing humans and their work. I know I am. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, sure. we definitely wanted to be super intentional on our relationship, um, our marriage and moving forward. What are we passing down to our kids? Um, but then also like the example for other people, because we really believe in um, servant leadership and being of service to other mm-hmm. people. And so how can we use our past experiences to help other people that are potentially going through similar things? And I would only, ima- I would only imagine that so many other people go are struggling with similar things of not having good role models of relationships of how to be successful in any way. And um, we were really struggling with that in the beginning of our relationship. Yeah. We're, we're still navigating, but it's yeah. a lot better. We had to be intentional about not uh, putting our trauma and our stress and all the problems of the world on our partner as if they're our savior and be intentional about getting counseling, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, spiritual sense, uh, just having that stability and that foundation and just other outlets to, mm-hmm. to express our emotions and having our partner there to, to support us in the right way. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, guys, if you didn't hear what Justin just said, he's not looking to Alexis mm-hmm. to be his like emotional prop or like life support or savior. I'm so glad you say that because you have to take radical ownership for not only everything that you are like everywhere that you've come out of in your past to to the degree of which it's yours to take ownership for. Right. Mm -hmm. And even in that to kind of break it down a bit, a bit, you also have to know, and I'm curious to hear you guys' backstory, like why care, why coming into foster care and all that. But just to finish the thought, taking ownership for who I am today. And so I'm sure there's times you want to point the finger, but at the end of it, you just have to say, you know, like Steve Urkel, did I do that? You know, <laughs> if you guys remember Steve Urkel, yeah. I'm aging myself now. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Um, My wife and I too, like I come out of a situation where I never met my biological father and there was a lot of abuse and traumatic experience in my past. And, oh man, like those first few years were really amazing. And those first few years were really trying. Um, I do want to get into your backstory, but before we go there, I want to, I just want to add something here because I think now's a good place to add it. Guys, I want to encourage you as somebody who's been married for almost 20 years, I've got more years under my belt as almost I almost have more years under my belt as a married man than I than I do not Mm -hmm. right so my wife and I got married when I was what was I 21 22 so 18 19 years yeah so we're coming yeah we're actually coming up on 19 years this year congratulations um thank you like 22 years of dating as of November 1st you know she was my high school sweetheart um 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I met her on October 25th. We became official on November 1st. Yes. Wow. And, uh, you but, <laughs> yeah. Right. But what I want, but what I want to say to you guys is this, if, if, if you will continue in this trajectory that you've set yourself in, you're going to look back 10, 15 years from now. And yes, you're going to have gone through some stuff, but if Alexis and Justin can hold on to one another, and and keep overcoming the odds man you don't even know how life great how great life can be yet like the best is guys the best is so yet to come so i want to back up and i want to ask you um i'd like to hear just individually from you guys like what is your story what what led you into care yeah just walk me through it yeah, so uh, first, um, I entered foster care at nine years old. Um, I, I'm from Detroit, and she's from Flint. So my, my family deal with a lot of substance abuse issues. Uh, my mom dealt with substance abuse, my dad uh, doing drugs, selling drugs a lot, in and out of jail. And um, it, it got to a point where that, that lifestyle became normal with neighborhoods filled with drugs and poverty. And... Uh, our situation, I mean, my mom was always willing to, you know, help other people. So, uh, you know, through her service, you know, we, we just got into a situation where, you know, uh, one of her friends seen the lifestyle we were living with, just, you know, bugs all over our house and everything and just the quality of life we lived. And uh, we, we eventually went on a run in there. <laughs> yeah. So we eventually went on a run because child... Child Protective Services found out about our situation, uh, living in an abandoned house, and uh, getting to a point where you know we live in an abandoned house in Michigan through the winter. So it just became like terrible. You know, me and my brothers got sick. My sister was pregnant. My one of my brothers was fourteen and had a kid on the way. And you know, I was I became used to the situation, but uh, it, it in that moment it was just like not normal and my mom realized that as well. And she let us go into the foster care system and just dealing with uh, um, emotional issues since then, even though I, I lived with family for a while, but also um, things got worse when I was 13 and I was walking home from school one day randomly and high school kids just jumped me and hit me with a brick and knocked about four or five of my teeth out and, and part of my bone between my gums and my, my nose and, uh, uh, just recovering emotionally from family issues, but also uh, through my teenage years, recovering from that and not having uh, the mental health resources and information to cope with those situations. And going into adulthood, I had to kind of figure out how to cope with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, oh, did you wanna say something? Yeah, I just wanna ask you, Justin, I, I, I remember being around your age. I feel like an old man here when we used to walk to school both ways up the hill in the snow. Um, <laughs> my old man voice. Uh, I remember at that time in my life when I was around your age and I would tell my story and I could do it just the way that you just did. I just rattled it off. You know what I mean? Like I, I told it several times and it could just roll out of my tongue and I really didn't think or give a lot of credence to it. I mean, dude, you just talked about running from CPS with your mom, with your family. You just talked about your 14 year old brother 
baby on the way. You just talked about some kids jumping you and like putting you in the hospital is what it sounded like for at least a bit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just sound you just rattled off some seriously. Like if any one of those things, Michigan in an abandoned house in the winter, come on, like that's freezing, that's freezing, freezing, that's an ice box, and that's yeah. your that's your living condition. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just curious, how does it? When you when you take the time to process that and think about that for a minute, how does that how does that feel coming out of your mouth? Well, one thing we always say, and when you get the chance to read the book, we, we feel like we've lived like three or four lives in one and one. Like in the beginning of the book, we get into a, a lot of those situations that landed us in foster care. And you know, me living in an abandoned house and going through all these experiences and, and a lot of other stuff and homelessness is, has been common and living in shelters in my family a lot. And even when we did have a house, you know, having our heat or water cut off during the winter and it was common. Um, but you would read later in the book about, you know, me studying abroad and doing great things and amazing things. And it's like, when I look at the book and I've read it like five times, it's like, man, it's like, how, did I really go through that? It's like, you have to question yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like, man, you really feel like you lived three different lives it's like phases of life and even though I'm only like 23 you know it, it just feels like it's so many different you know phases in my life and the thing also is that we had to call this redefining normal because you know it's so easy for me when I reflect on it even today the experiences of my 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 family and my my life as a child as a teenager you know if this was to happen to somebody else I'll be blown away I'll be shocked but it's so easy for me to say certain things and talk about my experiences and not even think twice about it because I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it was normal. And within my family context, it was acceptable and it was okay. And yeah, I don't think twice about it. It was just, it was normal and it's what I've been through. But when I hear other people stories and they've been through just 1% of what I've been through, I'm like, Oh man, I feel for you. you know, your situation is so, I just feel for them. But for me, it's just like, you know, it's whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and I need to uh, maybe uh, sympathize some more with myself and my experiences mm -hmm. and <laughs> and just be aware of what I've been through. So listen to your wife. <laughs> yeah, I tell him that all the time. You know, he's so hard on himself all the time for things. And I'm like, babe, you I'm told him, I'm like, I'm going to print off your resume and put it on the wall and just show you like you got to be so proud of yourself. Like you've overcome so much. You've accomplished so much stop being so hard on yourself you know mm. i tell them that all the time <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna make me have to pull out a hat and a hoodie we did these hats that have i am on them and then we did these hoodies that have you're enough on them mm. and if if we did those hats for anybody there goes there goes tiffany if we did those hats for anybody we did those hats for i mean really i did them for me mm. just to remember who i am you know to remember what I've done. It's, it's interesting. I started, a, I started professional counseling this week, like being on the receiving end of professional. Oh, counseling. I love it. Congratulations. Now, I, I probably should have started this 25 years ago, to be honest with you. But it's, it's interesting that Alexis points that out about putting your resume on the wall, because um, one of the things that I struggle and you do, if I can, for just a moment, um, you take me back to this place where 
I was a kid, I was eight or nine and the heat was turned off. There was no, you know, it's freezing cold. My grandma was about to like the house was about to be foreclosed on and dude, she only owed like one or two months payments or whatever left on it to own it, you know, and like, it's about to get foreclosed on. And, uh, like a couple months before she'd gone out, she'd gone out and bought this new, um, um, dining room suit and dog, I, <laughs> I kid you not, they were cutting the legs off of the dining room table and off of the chairs and using them as firewood Aww. to keep the house warm. And, and what I'm, what I'm seeing is, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm 40, I lead an organization. I've been married to my high school sweetheart for almost 20 years. Um, you know, my kids know their dad, like my wife and I have two boys, 17 year old and a 15 year old. And, you know, we've been blessed, man. I mean, I, there, there's no other way to say it. We've been blessed, but there are still times in my life where I struggle with where I wrestle internally with self-worth and value and a poverty or scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. And, and other, other, like my kids don't have that. Right. Like my kids, they've like, they've had their mom and dad to love them their whole life. Like their value, their self-worth doesn't have to come from what they, whether or not they feel like they're valuable. Mm-hmm. See, for folks, and, and you guys, the situation was, I mean, it was intense. Like, I feel it. And for folks in our situation, and this is what I don't think people outside, if you've never experienced stuff like this, this is what I don't think it, you understand. We have to manufacture our own self-worth. Mm-hmm. Like, my self-worth has come through accomplishment. My self-worth isn't necessarily, in, it's not just in there. I mean, my mom would tell me that she loved me and stuff. Sure. But at the same time, the rest of the world always reminded me of how, how valuable I wasn't, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. So, um, I know I, I thank you guys for letting me share that, you know, and, and use up some of your time here because I just think, um, just as we identify those little things in life that, that want to hold us back and want to stop us. And those little, those just little bitty mindset tweaks, you know, that if we can know that we're valuable and Justin, if you can always, you're valuable, Justin, whether you wrote a book or not, Mm -hmm. right. You're valuable, whether you studied abroad or not, right. Mm -hmm. You're, you're more valuable than a freezing cold, you know, abandoned house in the winter in Michigan. Even though at one time life tried to tell you that that's all you were worth, you're more valuable than that. And too too often in the West, we we equate value with, you know, the the latest and the greatest and the, you know, what you drive and what you wear. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm preaching now. I'll hush. Alexis, (laughs) I want to hear you. What, yeah, tell me your that's story. A, actually, that's a perfect segue into my story because um, so much of my history and uh, and a lot of the things that I've gone through it has to deal with worthiness and my value and what and my identity. And we uh, we actually call this book more of an identity book than a relationship book, just because we had mm-hmm. to really figure out who are we and what is our identity rooted in. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, my identity started really with um, my mom, my biological mother at six, she committed suicide, or at six, when I was six, she committed suicide. 
And, um, and then my biological father, I lived with him and he started abusing me. It was um, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse uh, for about eight years. And then my freshman year of high school, I had to testify against him. Um, and then the next year uh, I went to sentencing and, um, and, I, and then from that situation, I lived with my aunt and uncle and, um, and that was not a healthy situation to live in. Uh, it was very um, emotionally and mentally abusive. And so it was just like, it was a lot of compounded trauma on, on top of each other and, um, and where my worthiness and, um, and things come in is I was to always taught that love hurts and love is transactional. And I was in an abusive relationship from about 13 to 22. Um, and, um, and so for me, it's just really so much of my identity and who I was came down to who I was with and what they saw of me. Um, Cause I didn't see that in myself. And so it, it felt like, you know, when they would leave me, it kind of felt like my soul left me. And, and I went through a lot of depression, suicidal, um, suicide attempts. I was in the hospital, PTSD twice, like, I don't know, I don't know. Just a lot of things. And um, it wasn't until about, it was 2016 when I left that relationship. And I actually met Justin one week later, which was kind of insane. Uh, but we, we definitely dive deep into these conversations and these ideas in the book of um, of worthiness and identity and things like that. Um, just because when you don't understand who you are and you have value and what you're rooted in, um, then you're willing to take and do anything. Um, and so that's that's really what I've seen in my circumstances and what I've seen from other people. And so that was just, that's something I really had to overcome and learn through. And, and thankfully I have an incredible partner who was willing to um, support me and love me through all of the healing and working through that and figuring out what is my identity and learning you know just how stubborn and hard-headed i am and mm. <laughs> and all these things uh but he loves me through it so <laughs> we support each other so. yeah we support each other it's so here's the thing though what i'm really curious of how how do, how do you what is what is your what is your vision if you will what is your what are you striving for right it's so that you don't so that you don't default back on those like do you guys call each other out when you're responding from a place of trauma or pain instead of responding from a place of love like and like hope for the future yeah I'm curious if you guys do that yeah I think that's a, an important aspect of a healthy relationship is just being each other's accountability partners that can go on all levels you know um your career, but then also emotionally and who you are and knowing that we are, the, he's the most um, vulnerable I've ever been with somebody. So I've never um, really exposed myself to somebody as much as I have to him mm. uh, in an emotional sense. And so knowing that we both have that for each other, we know each other. And so when I see him acting out of character, or acting differently, or um, triggered by something, it's, it's easier to really hold each other accountable because we can recognize those things and we see those things. Mm -hmm. um, and so like sometimes he'll do certain like body language and things where I know something's wrong and he'll say, no, nothing's wrong. And I'm like, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll just wait a minute because he's the type of person that he has to process, you know, what he's thinking, what he's, what's going on in his mind so that he can um, articulate it to me in a better way. And, and honestly, I didn't realize like how much I needed that when I came from an abusive relationship where uh, 
really that person said anything and everything that came to his mind, no matter how evil and awful it was to me. And then now I'm with somebody that is so extremely thoughtful of every word that comes out of his mouth and to the point where he'll walk away and have to come back and be able to articulate those things. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful for it, but also it's so frustrating because I'm like, I just want to get it over now. I want to talk about it now. Um, so that's one of the huge things that we had to navigate in the beginning of the relationship was just how to communicate successfully and not with what we grew up with, with which was so much like screaming, yelling, hitting and all that. Um, so how do we have a healthy dynamic? Mm-hmm. That's really good what you just pointed out. I'm curious, do you guys know, like, like Justin, it sounds like if I, fa- if I say functional amygdala hijack, do you know what I'm talking about? No, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If I say amygdala hijack, do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, if I had, if I could see it and break it down, maybe, but no, nah, I don't. All right. So, um, so Alexis, has Justin ever made you angry? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. How about this? Um, have you, I, this never happens in Michigan. Have you ever, uh, have you ever been driving and, oh, now my phone's ringing. Oh, things are going off. Oops. My bad guys. Let me see. Uh, let me do do not disturb mode. Oh, so sorry. Um, I don't even know how you do it. How do you do do not disturb? There it is. All right, there we go. <laughs> you ever been driving in Michigan and somebody cuts you off and you just get tense all of a sudden? Yep. <laughs> all right, let me ask you this. Do you do you want to fight? Do you freeze and want to like, ah, you know, just kind of tense up? Um, and like, there's a lot of stuff going on inside, but you just like freeze. Or do you like, I got to get away from this. This is a dangerous situation. I just got to run. I got to go somewhere else. Which one's, which one's yours? So I'm thinking when I hear this, I think of like the, the fight or flight reaction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Fight, flight, Um, freeze. Yeah. And for me, well, I know what I am. I'm the fighter one and he's the, he's the runaway. I'm I'm probably the flight. Yeah. I'll I'll, I'll just get away from it. I'll probably say some bad things in my head or in the car. Yeah. He always does says things in his head and I have a big big mouth. So I say the first thing that comes to my mouth, (laughs) my mind. Come on. I feel you. And I have to be careful that I'm like, Oh Jesus, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought those bad things. They were, um, so, so yeah, amygdala hijack is what creates that fight, flight, freeze response. So your amygdala is this little bitty thing. It's at the bottom of your brain. It's at the top of your spinal column. It's called amygdala because it's shaped like an almond and amygdala is, is Latin for almond. So it's this tiny little gland, base of your brain that responds up to a hundred times more quickly than your executive function. Mm. So your thinking brain. So it's, so that's why it's called, um, it, the better word for it is an amygdala reaction, not really response, because a response is what I bring to the conversation or to the table or to the situation. So it's really healthy for you to understand your functional amygdala hijack and what triggers and like how you respond. So like Alexis, if you're the, you know, if you're like me and you're the one that's like, let's go, let's get it over with now. Let's be done with it so that we can just move on and if justin's more of the no nah, i gotta get away from this this is just this, yeah. is not a, this is not a healthy situation then so so be familiar with that because and 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 in your growth and in your understanding and in your love for one another 
you know, this is, this is useful for, this is useful for all of us on planet earth right now. Right. Mm -hmm. We have to learn how to hold space for one another. Um, it's awesome that you got, there's, I forget the, the name of the psychologist that, um, termed it this, but it's the, the, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse for any relationship. It's like the four things that will, I have a, I just so happen. Here it is. There's my, there's my printout of it. Um, so the things that, the things that can kill a relationship, uh, one criticism, uh, verbally attacking personality or character. So you guys married pretty young. Like my wife and I married pretty young, right? Like I married her. I got her off the market as quick as I could. Like I was like, she's, you know, I'm like, That's done. What I did. <laughs> come on, you know? Yeah, man. It's like, I know what I got. I'm good. Uh -huh. Like forever. Freshman. I'm like, before all these little girls get to him, let me come on. Let me get That's right. So, and okay. So, you know that, so what's, what's in there is, I mean, Justin is not, Justin is not the same person that you met four years ago. Mm -hmm. So, or you fell in love with four years ago, right? Mm -hmm. He's, he's becoming a man. He's got four years of marriage under his belt. So, we just got I'm married. sorry, four years of relationship yep. under his belt. So <laughs> it's, so it's unfair. Do you feel what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? So it's, it's like for me and my wife, it's unfair for me to go back on something that's a decade old yeah, and not give her just the love and the grace and just the fortitude of, Hey, we're not, we're not, we're not those people. And we're not who we were then. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like, I loved how you said that Alexis, you're talking about putting his resume on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it really is important to celebrate one another. The other, I'll read off the other three just so that we complete them. Uh, contempt, attacking sense of self with intent to an insult or abuse. Uh, defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And Justin, I would caution to be stonewalling and defensiveness are kind of the same. Mm -hmm. Because eventually you are going to have to face what the trigger was, right? We, we, we talk about that. We talk about that in... Uh our styles of communication and how we were able to kind of uh, figure out and deal with, you know, kind of meet a middle ground of, okay, I can't just run away, but then we can't just say the first thing that comes to our mind and have mm -hmm. that middle ground of communication and figuring out how the other person communicates and doing it in a healthy way. So we, we've been working on that and always figuring it out how to do better, but that's something we always discuss and talk about in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Brother, I'm gonna be real. It's something you're gonna discuss until the day you get ready to leave planet Earth. <laughs> and look, when y'all have kids, oh man, yeah. Because and then your kids, one of them's gonna throw up in the middle of the night, and somebody's gonna have to clean it up. And then you're gonna need some diapers at the most inconvenient times and then one of them's gonna be crying at 3 a.m and you've got a work appointment at 7 30 and it's kind of like i've been late for the last 15 i really don't need to be late for this one <laughs> you know what i'm saying and just nav and then they become teenagers oh man now i'm just you i'm using you guys for therapy now <laughs> oh boy um and then 
and then there's something in there too. When my wife and I had kids, it instantly hit me. I remember being in the hospital that first night my son was born and, uh, and I opened my Bible and I was just looking for a place to turn. You ever just open your Bible or whatever, and you're just looking for something, mm-hmm. you know, and I opened up my Bible and I was just looking for something. And I turned up the most odd passage ever. It was like Psalm 127 or something like that, but it was fitting. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Mm-hmm. And what I'm so grateful for you guys, man, mm-hmm. because um, you're beating the odds mm-hmm. and you're not capitulating. You are raising your standard and you are raising your worldview. And I'm almost jealous of my kids at times, to be honest with you. And mm-hmm. I think it's healthy. Um. My wife and I, we've, we've had the opportunity to take our boys on these trips the last few years. We've got to travel a little bit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my kids will be like, but dad, I don't want to go to Puerto Rico for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dad, I don't want to go to St. Thomas for a month. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with this kid? He's broke, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I just say that because, guys, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, you if you guys stay in this, can I just give you a little bit more more uh, like a benevolent uncle here? Can I just be I Uncle John it. for a minute? We'll take it, we'll take we'll it take all. Audio advice. You, you you I have no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind that if you guys hang on to each other and hang on to what's good and true and lovely, I have no doubt. Like I'm thinking of um, Anthony Trucks. When you listen to this, I want you to look up Alexis and Justin. Um, oh, we're going to be on his podcast. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> Anthony is an amazing human. I love that dude. I love that dude. And God has so blessed him with influence. Um, there you go. <laughs> and as, as you guys keep on spinning this thing out and grinding it out and plugging your work, thank you for believing in your book. You guys are going to experience success. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. And it's not a matter of like what, it's a matter of how much, right? This, I want to tell you, man, when you, when you get to a place where you're not having to think about bills or you're not having to think about, you know, there's more money, there's more month than there is money, when you're, when you know what I'm saying, when you're coming into that place where you're really experiencing that overflow that life has to offer you, I want to encourage you, like, just be who you are and keep adding value. Mm-hmm. The realest people I've ever met, it's not the people in the middle. The people in the middle, they're like monkeys in a barrel. They're all trying to pull each other down. The realest people that I've ever met, the best people that I ever met, they're people whose like names you would recognize. They're people like Anthony and others who have, I mean, the world has decided to put them on their shoulders and carry them. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But what makes those people amazing is those people keep giving. They keep mm-hmm. giving. And that's the law of receiving. I won't go into all of the five universal laws, but one of the universal laws that we just experience is the law of receiving. Mm-hmm. And when you find a way to get to add massive value to this world, 
See, what I didn't tell you about that month in St. Thomas was I message. I was going to message like 40 different homeowners on Airbnb and say, hey, are you, is your rate negotiable? Is your rate negotiable? Is your rate negotiable? <laughs> and the second dude I messaged knocked almost 80% off of his rate in the first reply that I received. Wow. Yeah. I need to do this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know... I don't want you to miss the point, right? <laughs> the The point is, the point is, is this, this, this world has a way like things cannot be out of balance mm -hmm. in our universe. Our world is always fighting for balance. Mm -hmm. and, and the law of receiving is, is when you give, 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 give. It's when you give, give. And you give, man, you don't even think about giving. You just give just to give. You just, you take your phone and you do a live and you just love on them and encourage them or whatever. And you just give, 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 give. Then what you're doing is you're throwing the world out of balance and something has to come back your way, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And and even even in like the church world and stuff, it's been said that you, you can't ever outgive God. Mm -hmm. something I started doing. I, I'll tell you guys, uh, God, I talk way too much. I need to listen more. <laughs> no, we love uh, it. Yeah. We taking it all in. I was in full-time student ministry for about 15 years and it was hard because I come out of my tra traumatic situation. And when you're, when you're, when you're looking for um, your sense of self-worth, right. Then everybody who ever dropped a nickel in the offering plate, they feel like they're your boss. That's my oldest son, Jaden. What's up, Jay? <laughs> they feel like you're, they're your boss. And, uh, and that, so that was a painful kind of experience and that's this whole other story. Um, I can't even remember what I was going to say. Jake, I'm walking in. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering who this big old dude is walking in. Come on, Jay. Yeah. Um, Did it come back? Yeah, it's all, it's all good. Yeah, it had to come back to me. <laughs> yeah but no we just we love just receiving all the advice and all the information we we like hoarders of information so mm -hmm. anytime we get information we always love to just take it in and pass it on to other people and that's why you know we feel like we give like thousands of dollars worth of of information to other people because of as soon as we learn something we just give it to somebody else and we just pass it on to somebody else and mm -hmm. that's, that's common kind of like all, mm -hmm. all we do like once we once we've had success with the book, mm. with, with sales or promo or media kits or anything small, you know, I'm talking to some of my friends to, uh, about uh, being an author or somebody come to me about book advice. And a lot, honestly, it's something I'm giving advice that I should probably charge somebody for, but because I'm just, you know, just want to see them succeed, I'm just giving it out, you know, and just trying to see how I can better serve them and help them. And that's just all we're about. We always try to uh, give other people information and resources. And have you did this? Have you did that? Are you, if you're doing the book, have you thought of this? And, and you know, put these ideas together or talk to this person and trying to put people together. So mm -hmm. uh, in doing that, it's been so many people who've done that, the same thing for us. And, you know, that's why our book is successful because we've been vulnerable and reaching out to people and, we've been so intentional about serving and telling so many people our dreams and our goals that they're like, Oh, so you have this goal. Let me help you do this. Let me serve you. Or, or I know this other person who's trying to do the same thing. Let me connect you to, and just being 
uh, honest and intentional mm-hmm. about sharing who we are and what we've been through and our goals and where we're trying to go. Man, it's been so many people who've lined up to help and serve us that, you know, we, we got to do 10 times as much to try to continue mm-hmm. to serve them and, and serve other people. So, because mm-hmm. if, if this book was written for us, it wouldn't be here. This yeah. book is yeah. for people mm-hmm. and serving others and, and just all the reminders that we receive throughout the process of writing it of how much bigger this book is than just us. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I really feel that it's got per- God's purpose for our lives. It's why we wrote it, <clears throat> why we wrote it, and why we're promoting it. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is a true blessing it, it is a blessing and i it did come back to me i did remember it um <laughs> when so when i was in student ministry um i worked at a lot of different churches i worked at like 11 or 12 churches in 15 years i had to go back and count them up just to make sure that my count's right and along the way my heart got hard you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying Mm-hmm. And my heart got jaded again because it's kind of like, man, I mean, these 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 people are supposed to love you and, and it ain't working out that way. Like this is messed up, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, I know I'm broken. I know I need help. And so anyway, I went through a period of my life where um, I almost spent two years out of church with my family. And this was after being a student pastor. And my heart was just bitter just bitter toward, you know, just bitter toward God. I don't even know, right? Bitter toward the idea of church. And so along the way, God just kind of broke my heart. Um, and we got back in church. And then um, here recently, it was it was this year, I was sitting in church. We, we were, you know, Alabama was one of the first places to open up where you could have public gatherings and stuff like that. Love you, buddy. Where you could have public gatherings and stuff like that and work you know, worship could happen like in person, as long as you're, you know, socially distanced and you're taking a bath and hand sanitizer and all this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I looked around one Sunday morning and it was like, it was like, you know, the later Sunday morning service, it was like the one that's supposed to be packed full of people. And I look around and man, there's, I mean, the room seats like 1500, but there might be 300 people in the room. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dang, I know the church staff still needs to get paid and I know like the electricity and stuff ain't free. Mm-hmm. And so God just kind of laid it on my heart to start giving again to yeah. the church. And like the pastor wasn't even talking about giving and he hadn't for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, all right. And I, I, I had a number coming in my head and I knew how much I needed to give. And the point of saying all that is, so my wife and I, we have started giving again. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how it's come back. Mm-hmm. It's story yeah. after story after story after story of how you you think you're being benevolent, right? Like you think you're being generous, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all you're, man, all you're doing is being a steward of the gift. Yeah. All you're doing is being a steward of the gift. So yeah. mm-hmm. guys, um, <laughs> thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be on your podcast today. <laughs> I love it because we're, always, <laughs> we're, you know, we're on these podcasts and, you know, we're always the one talking, but I would love to learn from the people that, mm-hmm. you know, we're on their podcast. I want to learn from you, you too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, 
yeah, it's it's been good to just process these thoughts. Thank you guys for holding space for me so I could process this. And um, thank you for thank you for being who you are. And, and thank you for being, you know, for doing what you're doing, man. If and I just want to, I mean, just for real, if there is ever anything that I can do or our organization can do just to help serve you guys and help um, shine a light. Um, one of the things that we're wanting to do is we, we wrote a grant. We actually didn't receive this grant. It was a federal grant to serve kids in care um, who are older adolescent youth. So 15 to 19 and even, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old. And what I heard was, and you guys can probably help confirm some of these numbers. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I heard that, I heard that uh, three out of four kids in foster care end up in like jail or prison by like their 23rd birthday. Okay. So y'all know what I'm talking about. And the, just the extremely high homelessness rate and actually in our book. So uh, each chapter we have statistics um, to, to raise awareness on all of these topics because so many people don't even realize all the things that's happening right around them in their neighborhood, yeah. even in their family, probably. And so uh, we, we shine a light on those statistics, but then right under it, we say, what does God say? And we do that because we want to show people that um, this is what the world tells this demographic, this population, or people that have our background. This is what the world tells us that we will be, or, or most likely will be. And this is what God says. Mm -hmm. And what is our identity rooted in? And um, so I, I love that you, that you reached out and you, um, you did that grant to try to support these young people because these statistics are real mm -hmm. and there's so many young people that are really struggling and trying to overcome these statistics and that's why we also put it in there i mean i'm a information nerd and i love quotes and statistics and all that stuff so i had to put that in there because i'm like there's just too many people that don't they're just not aware of what is going on around them yeah. I, i'm curious do you think the statistics exist because kids coming out of care just simply don't know how to acclimate into society? Or do you think it's you've been in fight or flight for so long that it's almost like me against the world mentality and every little thing triggers me and I may or may not have healthy coping skills to just handle tiny little stresses that happen in life? Or maybe a combination of both. What do you think? I think it's there's so many layers to that. And I think it's kind of unfair to do a complete generalization. But um, from our experiences and from other youth that we've seen, mm. uh, it is a mixture of a lot of those things. But also, to me, foster care is just a complete failure of, of community and society to allow this to happen. Because mm. if every single mm. church were to foster and adopt one, one child, the foster care system wouldn't exist. And so the church is not doing its jobs. Families aren't doing their job. There's just such a, a complete um, societal failure for these youth. And uh, when youth are trying to transition out of foster care, and I had a phenomenal support system of my foster parents, now my adoptive parents, and, um, and I was very involved in college and had mentors, all these things, and still aging out was so hard. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's like, I can't imagine what it is for the youth that have none of these systems in place to support them when they age out. No wonder why the homelessness rate is so high. No wonder why the crime rate is so high for these youth. And there, mm -hmm. and there's a foster care to prison pipeline. Um, there, that to me is, uh, it makes complete sense because of the lack of mentors and skills and all these things that the youth are able to build. Uh, like say for in Michigan youth 
are able to um, do independent living where they can live with somebody and they're taught those skills. But a lot of times these parents are and these individuals are in it for the money or they're not even teaching the skills needed to help these youth live by themselves. Mm -hmm. Like in high school, uh, what my foster parents did was I paid rent out of the monthly stipends so that I could learn how to pay bills every month and I could learn how to budget. But what if I didn't learn that? And I still went to college and was spent crazy and when I got my scholarship money. Um, but she tried to teach me those principles. And so I think about the young people that are aging out that don't have any of those support systems or learning those um, basic skills to be able to uh, do basic functions by themselves. Um, and when you don't have that, and when you have a system based on um, social workers and foster parents always telling you what to do, you don't learn how to make decisions for yourself. And that was one of the greatest things that my foster mom did for me was when I moved in, she would ask me questions. She would um, ask me, you know, what is it that I want? Or when I come to her and say, you know, um, uh, you know, what is your opinion on this? Should I do this or not? And she's like, well, what do you think? And it's forcing me to realize like, what are my decisions? What are my consequences? And they're always on me based on the decision that I make. But that's really difficult when, you know, you always have social workers or other people constantly making decisions for you. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, you're not building that those, that's an incredibly important skill set, especially, um, you know, when, when thinking of like committing crimes and other things, when you don't understand that there's a consequence there. Mm -hmm. Were you gonna say something? I was just... <laughs> <laughs> Justin's like Alexis I think you covered I, I'm curious to hear I, I heard something in there that I want to circle back to because this was this was what I thought part of the solution could be because this is what I thought that the problem was I thought the problem was there's a there's a complete breakdown of community mm -hmm. so you said something that I don't you don't I don't know if you realize or not but it really challenged me and I had to say, all right, I need to listen. Mm -hmm. You said, you know, just to rattle off a couple of things like that, that's an overgeneralization of the problem. So I appreciate you saying that because I need to hear that. Um, okay, as I understand it, there are a couple other stats that are equally true. The average tenure of a kid in care is 18 months. Mm -hmm. And the average... Um, the average length of placement is 30 days. So okay. if, if that's, if that's true, then, then if the average tenure is 18 months and the average tenure is 30 day or average placement tenure is 30 days, that means you're in 19 different places in 18 months. Yeah. So, um, I have a friend who was in how many houses? Was she? 20 something. My, one of my really Jeez. good friends she's in over 20 houses. That is insane to me and um and i mean lifetimes come on that's crazy exactly and think about you know just all the different transitions between schools between you know just just all the traumas that that really just lays upon each other like layered and so um like one thing that michigan did that i i took advantage of was like if you're placed in a different home but within the same county you can go to the same school so that tries to safeguard the youth from having to constantly switch schools because mm. i went to 10 different schools um and and then I would have had to switch again in high school if that law wasn't in place. And that was only a year or two um, the law was in place when I got it. And, and, um, and the school was there to support me through that. But all the youth that don't have all of these safeguards in place and people there in their community to support them. But I think it's also important to mention that I truly believe that just as many youth that are in foster care, there should have been youth in foster care. So sure. I, I um, think so I'm one of them. 
Exactly. For all of the youth that, um, well, or what I always say is like foster care or foster youth are in foster care a lot of times because somebody advocated on their behalf mm -hmm. and got them out of that situation. Yeah. But what about all the kids that don't have somebody there and are struggling? Like I had one of my best friends growing up, she hundred percent should have been in foster care. Her mom would throw hammers at her and bite her and all these things and kick her out whenever she got a new boyfriend. And, you know, it was just mind blowing. But then when she got to college, um, her mom wouldn't support her in filling out the FAFSA. And you have to have that, you have to have a family member there. So she couldn't go to college for several years because her mom did that of spite. So it's, it's just these things that youth also who aren't in foster care have to really struggle with just as much. And at least when you're in foster care, you do have a lot of resources and things available to you, but youth that aren't don't have access to that. Like mm -hmm. I really struggled when trying to get her, you know, into college and scholarships, all these things. But it's like, if you were to just been in foster care, like I could have helped you with free tuition. You know what I mean? It's there's, there's like so many, you know, on both sides. Yeah. Um, and we, one of the statistics in the book that we um, pointed out um, for being in foster care was that um, almost 80% of inmates incarcerated in our prisons have spent time in foster care with black men being six times more likely to be incarcerated as white and Hispanic men. Um, so <clears throat> we, we always talk about that all the time about how um, the foster care to prison um, pipeline and how that's an actual, that's a thing. And Justin would have had to do that as well if he didn't have a group home that took him in. Mm -hmm. He had, it was either a group home or juvie. And you see that with so many young people that don't have a foster home to go to. You're split up from your siblings more than likely, or you could be placed at a state um, or you could go to juvie if there's not a home for you. There's a complete, what I'm hearing is is there is a complete breakdown of community in the life of the adolescent youth or pre-adolescent youth during the time they need the strong community support the most in their life. That's what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Of course. So I'm I'm hearing that I'm hearing that there are some positives to the system as is. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing that there are some gross negligences to the system as is. What I what I'm curious, and I know you're gonna have something to say here, and I hope you do, and I hope you do. I, I, here's my, what's the solution? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the million dollar question. We yeah, are to I was just about out. to say that. Um, but I think it's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. Um, I me, mean, you, you kind of going towards the answer now. There is no no policy, there's no law, there's no caseworker or anybody who can build these foster youth, the family and the community. But like Alexis mentioned, you know, like if the church, I think the church is always the solution and God's word is always the solution. So if churches can get involved in the foster care system and there's, that's an immediate community right there mm -hmm. of <clears throat> mentors, of people who are supportive, of people who, um, can get you involved in like a sports league or something, you know, hobbies and different things. Um, if more churches can be trained to be foster care parents, foster care advocates, and not just have one family, uh, one, one uh, mom and dad say, okay, we took this kid and everything's all good, but the entire church get involved in saying, mm -hmm. okay, I can't be a parent, but I can be a mentor. And, oh, I can't, uh, do this, but I'll maybe if you need to get away on a weekend or something, mm -hmm. I can help you with the youth or just everybody in the church play a role 
in the youth life mm-hmm. and and get involved in the issue and i think that is the the one of the biggest things that the foster care system really needs they need the church and uh, the foster care system needs to reach out to more churches to be trained and be aware of the issue and uh, that is just a clear thing that can be done of course it's easier said than done like i said but mm-hmm. it, it in my opinion that's like the the go-to thing that people should do because that's really what helped me you know i was uh, i was in detroit i was around my biological family a lot i had a lot of negative negative influences <laughs> around me but the main thing that helped me was i was kicked out of a home and I was forced to move to a group home where it was four boys transitioning into, into adulthood. I was about uh, 17 years old and I moved right outside the city. And I uh, I kind of uh, moved into this home, not knowing that it was surrounded by great mentors and men and women and black men and women who were examples for me and spoke life into me and told mm-hmm. me that I will be going to college and doing great things and mm-hmm. uh, amazing tutors. Uh, Spanish math tutors and and just people who are always surrounding me and helping me and a community who believed in me. So I got to a point where I started working hard on uh, just to satisfy them and not even myself. So that community believing in me made me and almost forced me to believe in myself and got me to a point of where I am today. But uh, just the church family, just, just being there for me really helped. And I think that a church family is what every single foster care youth needs. And uh, I think truly being inspired by the word of God and taking in these youth and building that community can really improve the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's just a million layers to this because mm-hmm. it, it can go all the way from the beginning of um, uh, mothers and um, parents not being supported <laughs> with their children because the number one reason why youth are taken away from their parents is neglect. And a lot of times that's actually um, uh, a symptom of poverty. And so, and that's unfortunately hitting the black and brown community, especially right now with COVID the most. Um, And so, you know, there's a million layers to that one, (laughs) all the way up to, you know, um, youth not getting the support that they need when they're aged out of care. It's like when you're 18 or 21, bye, you know, have a good life, probably statistically homeless or in prison after that. Um, So society has completely given up and and failed them. And so... (laughs) I don't know. There's there's a million different ways yeah, we can go about this. We could talk. I could talk about this forever. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, at some point though, at, at some point though, we we have to, we do have to be the change that we want to see in the world. And at some point, we do have to advocate for legislation. And at some point, we do have to you painfully solicit our lawmakers and make our voices heard and begin to, you know, sample size some things. And can we get a community of churches involved in a local jurisdiction and just, you know, beta test it or alpha test it? It actually sounds like Justin, your experience is kind of a beta tested or alpha tested experience. So now how can, you know, how can you scale that out? And then, and yeah, there, there are a lot of issues that could potentially get in the way. There's the the, the idea of you know how much how much of a role should religion play in governance and society and things like that but to to some degree a lot of that a lot of those personal nuances for the public safety and welfare of adolescent youth mm-hmm. some of those nuances we we just need to let them we just need to let those lie where they are for a little while just to see if we can help kids because at the end of the day, 
at least for me, it's more important. And I feel, and I'm fairly certain you guys feel the same way after listening to you. If, if I can provide a better experience during those formative adolescent develop years, development years, there's a fantastic book I want to recommend. Um, the book is called Brainstorm. It's by Dr. Daniel Siegel. Um, the subtitle is The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain. And one of the things, one of the experiences that adolescent youth are looking for more than anything else Mm -hmm. is to fit in is to have a place to fit in mm -hmm. because the reason why my boys were or my oldest son was like dad i don't want to go to saint thomas for a month he had football practice mm -hmm. he didn't want to miss football mm -hmm. and dad this isn't only football this is football for my senior year you know kind yeah. of a thing so so when, when you when you know when you frame it in a little more you can kind of begin to understand it um mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, I'm going to put the landing gear down because I have a hard stop. Um, I have a, um, a meeting that I need to get to with some, it's a zoom just like this one with some uh, federal project people, mm -hmm. but Alexis, Justin, I do want to stay in touch. Um, I want to connect with you guys. Um, I got an idea. Love it. We're here yeah. for ideas. I think there's some potential for collaboration. Mm -hmm. um because the idea that we wrote the federal grant for i haven't given up on it and i plan on writing it again every chance every time money comes out because <laughs> i think we can help provide community to kids in care and i think we can provide a consistent community uh, continuity of consistency in community and if we can do that I think we can begin to see a reduction in, in the pipeline between foster care and prison. Mm -hmm. exactly. So anyway, Justin, Alexis, y'all are awesome. Yeah. Thank you. You're amazing also. So thank, thank you. you so much for having us on. It's a pleasure. I, I see that you guys are committed to changing the world and I believe that you're going to do it. And my encouragement is, is just, um, I'll leave you with one last story, and this isn't me. This is uh, the late Martin Luther, the the father of the Protestant Reformation. In the in the height of the Reformation, um, it was like a Friday evening, and Luther had it was like you know in the it, the the day had turned had turned into night, and it was time to quit work for the day. And Luther put on his overcoat, he blew out the candle at his desk, and he got up, he gathered his bag, and he was headed out the door to walk home. And his understudy turned and said to him, my dear Martin, where are you going? We've got a lot of work to do. And Luther looked at his understudy, and he said, you know, to the effect of, he said, you know, God started this without me, or he started this before me. He can do it without me. And right now it's time for me to go home to my wife and to my kids. Mm, I love and, that. Uh, I do too, because that's, that is part of it. Now, the rest of the story is because it's Christmas time <laughs> on his way home that night, he saw a street lamp glistening through the snow on a tree. Mm -hmm. And when he got home, he collected every candle in the house after the kids had gone to bed and he put the candles on their tree. 
-hmm. It was the first time that a tree had ever been illuminated with light. And it was Martin Luther who uh, was able to create the beauty of lights on a Christmas tree that we get to celebrate and enjoy now just because he decided to make sure he stayed committed and focused on his family as well as on his work. Mm. So anyway, that's amazing. That's a beautiful story. I love that. Yeah, it is. Well, you guys, you guys keep after it and I absolutely can't wait to see what God does with your lives. It's a pleasure to have you guys. Thank you. And I can't wait to check in again and see everything, all the amazing things that you you do. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. Well, everybody, we're, we're going to, uh, in the show notes, we're going to share where you can connect with Alexis and Justin, but for people who might be listening to this going down the road, where can they find you? Uh, you can find us at re-definingnormal.com and you can email us at info at re-definingnormal.com. Our book, Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love is available on our website and on Amazon. Nice. <laughs> nice. And we will have all the links in the show notes. So as you're driving home or getting a lift in the gym, uh, just click on the link buy the book, support their work, support them, stay in touch, connect. Alexis, Justin, it's a blessing. You guys are a gift. Until next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Life That Counts. Tune in next time for more insight with host John Williams.